welcome to the Alice and Bob podcast, where we find the person in the black hoodie and talk more about that human behind the keyboard. This week, I'm joined by Shia Tamari, head of research at Wiz. Shia is an experienced cybersecurity professional who's filled various roles in developing and researching cybersecurity products, specializes in vulnerability research and application security. And we've got some fantastic chat around his findings today um, and responsible disclosure. So Shia, w- welcome to the podcast and please tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got started. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> it's a wonder to be here. So um, my name is Shir. I'm uh, 31 years old from Israel and uh, I'm a computer hacker. And <laughs> this is how I define myself. Uh, I search for threats, uh, risks, um, and everything that could endanger um, the our industry and the community. Um, I mostly um, search for uh, high impact security issues, um, the ones that has um, the most severity. Uh, and I'm very satisfied by that. Uh, I'm doing it. Uh, um, first, it's very challenging for me to to search and spot and to detect those new risks. Um, and it's also very satisfying that I can assist and help the industry to protect against those uh, security issues. And we're really thankful that you do. And I know we're going to talk about this later on, but you've had some incredible research and vulnerabilities you've discovered. Um, just thinking, you must have got started in security at quite a young age. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how you got started with security. Um, all right. So um, I, I was born around. I was born in the nineties, and I think it was a great um, era uh, to start with computers. Um, and somewhere in, I, I think, in the age of uh, eleven, um, I just finished um, middle school, and uh, my mom and my best friend's mom decided to send us to um, a summer camp of a website, website building summer camp. Um, and I, until then I had some experience with computers. I had a computer at home. I was, I, I was playing a lot of computer games, but I think this, uh, this, um, summer school was, uh, was my entry into the computer world. Uh, we learned uh, HTML, uh, Macromedia flash, uh, Photoshop in a, a three weeks uh, camp. And this is where I, I remember the, the exact moment where, when I was actually discovering for the first time that there is something that's called hacking. Um, and I, at that moment, I, was, I decided that uh, this is what I want to do. Sounds like quite a fun summer camp as well. I don't think yeah, I've ever heard of three, three weeks of intense design, development, Let's get you started and get you straight to a, straight to a job. And I, I had, um, as we spoke before, you mentioned you used to play a lot of video games. And I believe one of your first exploits was through hacking uh, old Counter-Strike servers. Is is that correct? Uh, yes, uh, it, it it wasn't my first. It was uh, like three years, four years into the game that um, uh, I, I, I really liked Counter-Strike, specifically 1.6, uh, the old uh, classic version. Um, and at that time, um, um, I mean, the cool, the cool kids uh, added their own servers where they can change the maps and decided um, and, and, and do tournaments. And uh, I really wanted my own. Um, and uh, I thought it could be cool to, to try to hack um, a Campus like servers. So the first thing I was, uh, I was doing was uh, brute forcing uh, the, the passwords for uh, Campus like uh, servers, but it wasn't that successful. Um, and then later I, I discovered uh, a much more sophisticated way to 
to gain access. Um, and it's surprisingly was uh, by finding a, a cross-site scripting vulnerability in one of the um, most common admin panels for uh, managing Counter-Strike uh, servers. Wow. So it, uh, would you like to listen? Uh, would you like to hear the technical details? <laughs> yeah, please. That sounds really interesting. Not not just because I love Counter Strike, but I think it's uh, quite fun that you saw that at what fifteen? You said three or four years into your career, fifteen, sixteen. So yeah, something like that. I think it was around two thousand five. Oh, so, uh, gosh, wow. Um, okay, so back in the days, I mean, I believe a lot of our audience uh, don't really know Counter Strike point six or. Maybe maybe they know, but not the the, the admin panel of uh, uh, managing those servers. But back in the days, it was very common to install uh, mods uh, on uh, Counter Strike servers, and one of the most common mods was um, uh, Webmin. Webmin was a model that you can install on your server, and then you can manage it through the web browser. So the admin will serve the IP and the port of the Counter-Strike server, and they will see uh, um, like um, a control panel where they can kick players, change maps. And um, one of the features there was to was a list of, of, the, of all the players that is actively playing in the game. Um, so I, I, was, I, I already had a, a very good website building experience, and uh, I thought it could be cool to try to put HTML tags in my name, in my player name. And then when the admin will manage the server and they will see the, the list of the players playing it, um, my HTML code will be executed uh, on their side. Uh, and I use that to steal uh, the cookie of the admin, which contained the uh, recon password. Um, and that was the first step. Yeah, it was very, very fun. Uh, the second step was also to change the names of all the players playing the game because admin in Counter-Strike can execute Counter-Strike commands on the clients. Uh, and by changing their names, once they are playing in, they are moving to other servers and playing in other servers, they will steal the admin uh, cookie for me. And uh, eventually I, I had 700 uh, Counter-Strike 1.6 servers. Uh, it must have been so much fun as well. Good, harmless fun, I, I imagine, at that time of your life. Uh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> what What was the moment then you kind of took that experience and thought, do you know, I could do this as a career? Uh, how did How did that kind of take off for you? How did you really make that from a passion to a profession? Um, so I think all, as a kid, uh, I, I dropped school in the age of 16. Um I didn't really, I, I, I graduated eventually, I mean, not fully graduated, but I went to the exams um, outside of school. Um, and I think that I knew at that point that uh, I, I know, I, I have some advantage. I know something that is, that, that was like that I, I can bring value. Um, and that gave me a lot of confidence as a kid. I knew that I'm going to work in this industry. Uh, I know that this is what I want to do. Um, and uh, after finishing the army in Israel, the, the military is mandatory. Uh, and I did uh, five years of service. And uh, after, after finishing my, um, my army service, uh, there was so much opportunities, especially in Israel, where we have a lot of cyber security companies. Uh, there was a lot of opportunities to use my knowledge and, um, uh, and also to do what I love, 
uh, in the industry and to bring value. Amazing. And did you did you have a lot of support? You said there was a lot of obviously cybersecurity companies in Israel. Um, how how did your parents and friends and family feel when you said you were going to go into this kind of career and get to where you are today? Um, so at, at the beginning, I, I can I can say like I can tell like I can share that for my parents' point of view. Um, they they were at the beginning they were a bit like confused about the idea that uh, um, someone that didn't graduate uh, that didn't finish high school uh, that didn't went to college. Um, we'll start working in the high-tech industry, but, um, but, but very short after I released from the army and I joined my first, um, my first role, uh, in the industry is, um, they feel very confident. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, in Israel, we have, because we have a lot of, uh, cyber security companies and also I, I, in, in the military, I was serving with a very, very good, like, I, I want to say like the top talent in Israel. Um, in my, like in my age, um, and, uh, so basically like my friends, my, my close circle, we all shared the same, um, uh, not just passion, but also the same, um, like, um, we were from the same circle. We all, we all, we all went after the army to work in the high tech. And so I, d I don't really need, I, the, the support was general from the community. Sounds like a really good community to be a part of, particularly, I guess, at that time where th things were on such a huge growth trajectory for you. Um, do, do you ever kind of look back and think to your your days at that computer camp and think, were, were you aware of what was happening outside of your computer camp? You, you know, I think you, you mentioned about the pranks you played with kind of Counter-Strike Go and um, being able to sort of troll other people. Were, were you ever aware before your military service that hackers were out there using technology to do much more malicious things? Um, yeah, of course. Um, also, also as a kid, um, learning, learning, I mean, I, all, all I, everything I learned in cybersecurity was from, um, online communities about these, uh, these things like, um, is there's a lot of Hebrew content also a lot like web forums and boards where people communicate and share knowledge. Uh, but there is also, um, some, a lot, a lot of websites I, I, that I still, I believe they are still active until today where, uh, a lot of people share, um, and they uh, talk about cybersecurity and also, and back, back then I was also, I was, I was winging, wingness, um, like, uh, people that using it, uh, to do bad things that do illegal things. I remember people approaching me with, uh, requests to share with them zero day exploits and, um, and to help them to steal data. So, so I mean, I, I was aware of that also as a kid and, um, and back then, I mean, cybersecurity was not as advanced as it's today, but it still got a news cover. And, uh, sometimes you can, you can see like, um, uh, cybersecurity companies, uh, get being interviewed in the news. So I knew there is an, like a old industry, um, that, um, walk in that subject. Let's revisit the period after you got out of the military. So I understand that you did consulting, not just for security companies, but also for different organizations. How did that opportunity to kind of get into that work come around? And what, what were the sort of things that you noticed in your approach there? What of the veterans of the, of my, of my military, someone who's at his uh, 10 years older than me, um, um, he opened, um, 
um, like a consulting com a consulting a services company that uh, did the software development uh, mostly for uh, companies in the uh, cybersecurity area. So um, um, just after releasing from Nami, he, he gave me an offer uh, to become a software developer. Uh, the company was called Nospit, and uh, one year after I, uh, I joined, it was uh, acquired by MagicLip, which uh, used to be a big thing uh, back then. Um, and um, so it was very easy to to enter the and also to get my first role. Um, I, I wasn't that good. I mean, I I I, I was okay, um, but I, I had a lot of a lot to learn. Um, also, software development in the army was less um, ordered or less like uh, methodology. Met there was less methodologies than in the industry. In the industry was much. They did much more efficient work and uh, um, much more like it, it, it was. It was a, a lot. Of, there was a lot of things to learn and to get to get better. Um, and uh, after one year at Northbit, I decided that I want to open my own uh, to start my own journey. And um, I became a consultant, uh, and I worked with a lot of companies, uh, a lot of known companies also in Israel that do uh, software security and uh, enterprise security. I mean, it really sounds like you had quite a fun sort of career exit leaving the military and prepared you really well for your current role. Um, so it led to you joining Wiz. Can you just tell us a bit more about Wiz um, and the sort of emerging technologies and techniques that you have found important? Uh, okay, so Wiz is a, a relatively new company. Uh, we started uh, in the beginning of the pandemic in uh, 2020. Um, I joined with in uh, the end of 2020 uh, after um, one my commander in the army uh, is one of the co-founders uh, in Oncostica. Uh, after he talked to me and told me like, uh, <laughs> stop doing these things you're doing and join us. Um, and Wiz um, is a fascinating company. We are doing a, a platform uh, to protect companies that uh, shifted to the cloud. And uh, we have a lot, of, I mean, all, all the um, all the basic things, not just the basic, everything that companies move to the cloud needs from vulnerability management to compliance, to um, uh, secret scanning, um, to real-time detections of events, everything combined in one platform. Um, the, 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 the company is built on the top talent uh, I'm aware of uh, in Israel. Um, we work very hard and we have uh, great achievements. Um, so yeah, now we are like 600, 650 people in the company. Gosh, in what, just three years, two years, uh, four years yeah. maybe? No, less than three. <laughs> wow, congratulations. That's, um, that's absolutely incredible, like a rocket ship. Um, so you mentioned you're, you're, you're kind of, you're thinking about everything that exists in the cloud and uh, a big part of your role is to research vulnerabilities. How how do you kind of identify where to where to start that work? What what drives you? Is it things like bug bounties, or are there kind of other other methods of becoming interested in in finding something to uh, to find a vulnerability in? Okay, so um, first I would like to 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 mention like the um, the main differentiator between uh, on-prem environment and cloud environments. Uh, companies who shifted to the cloud 
they start using a lot of new software, a lot of new services. They modify it, they, they change their architecture. And usually um, security holes will be in those places, in those overlooked places or new places where um, a, the, the, the DevOps team or the security team or the developers, they start using a new service. They don't fully understand the new service. They don't fully understand how to configure the new service. And, and this is a place to find a lot of security issues. Um, so it, 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 there is the most common, one of the most common security issues in the cloud is, um, a, a, it's a ex publicly accessible resources. Um, so the, the most common ones, for example, is exposed buckets, but it could also could be exposed identity providers or misconfigured identity providers or um, a, a container registry that is publicly accessible. So in order to find those, you need to, 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 to actually use and to, to test the new tools the new capabilities that cloud that the cloud provides us, and to start to assess, like um, to to understand the software, to understand the new software, to follow the documentation, to try to think like where me as a DevOps or as a, a, a developer could can make a mistake. Where what um, what would be like the hardest for a security um, uh, role in the organization? What would be the hardest to monitor, difficult to monitor, to govern? And this is how we actually uh, this is the main approach to find the. Um, uh, the overlooked places where uh, companies might um, did the wrong thing and didn't configure their uh, uh, cloud the right way, um, and also we we take the new all the new technologies that companies are using because they they start working with the cloud they start they change their deployment method they change their uh, CI/CD uh, pipeline we take all the new software and we we learn about it we analyze it and we find vulnerabilities. Uh, sometimes we find zero-day vulnerabilities, then we report them and um, and disclose them with the vendors, uh, and then sharing it also with the community. Sometimes we find misconfigurations. Uh, this is where we add it to the product as as to bring value to our customers, but eventually also sharing those with the community. So not just our customers will be protected against those. Um, yeah, and this is basically the work to find new risks, find the risks and disclose them properly. Um, I was going to ask actually around that you say you disclose them to the vendor and to the community just just for our listeners can you help people understand um what it means to make a responsible disclosure and some advice that you, or tips that you would have uh, for individuals coming forward to organizations with those vulnerabilities of course so uh, a responsible disclosure is the process where a researcher uh, reports um, a security issue or a vulnerability to a vendor who is responsible to fixing those issues. Um, it's very important to do responsible disclosure because if um, you do like, I don't know, like a full disclosure out of nowhere, um, malicious actors and uh, attackers could use this information and uh, hack a lot of um, users, organizations, companies uh, based on the researcher information. So it's very important to make sure that the vulnerabilities are fixed and mitigated, and also to do a good effort to to and wait for customers to apply the, the fix. Because sometimes we have um, a, a new vulnerability. For example, someone can disclose a new vulnerability to Microsoft. Microsoft will fix it, but still will not release a patch. It's very good. It, it, I mean, um, researchers should wait until the patch is uh, uh, is publicly available for the companies. Um, now. Maybe if I'm thinking about like a good tip about responsible disclosure uh, is to work very closely with the vendor. 
Uh, it really depends on how attention the bug hunter or the researchers, um, how much attention they can actually invest in this uh, report. Uh, we try to do our best and to, uh, to invest a lot in the report and in the disclosure process. It's very important to, to, put, to invest in it because then you can actually verify that the vendor fixed the vulnerability the right way. Uh, you can ensure that you can work on the communication and, and make sure that you, the researcher understand, they have a full understanding of the, of the issue. Um, and also, um, uh, it helps. It, 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 a lot of times we see that because companies with a very mature and very uh, popular bug bounty programs, they get a lot of reports. Um, so it's very difficult for them to, um, because it's, it's a running process, um, it's very difficult for them to, uh, and to ensure that the vulnerabilities are not, they didn't fix just one instance of the vulnerability. It's very difficult for them to actually measure and to see that the vulnerability is fixed. Uh, that, that pattern, maybe, I mean, that the vulnerability is not just a unique instance. It might be a pattern that they might want to fix in other places. And with the researchers, we, we do that. We actually um, make sure that we ask them like the, the tough questions, like, do you think this vulnerability could occur in other places? Uh, how can we ensure that uh, if it's a pattern that all other places are protected? Uh, and this is a very good way. We actually succeeded that in, in multiple times to ensure that uh, not just the vulnerability that we reported was fixed, but the entire uh, attack surface was reducted um, um, and also making their product much more secure in the future. Um, yeah, and also, I mean, I, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good tip. If you want, you can think about more. <laughs> no, that's fantastic tips for our listeners. It's it's really made me think as well about the, the accountability that a vendor has to fix the vulnerability that you've discovered. Um, and I wondered, is that part of the reason you like to almost broadcast and, and share the vulnerabilities that you find with, particularly whilst working at Wiz? Um, and how, how do you think that helps that dynamic of holding somebody accountable for delivering a fix to their software? Okay, first of all, sharing uh, research with the community is a very important aspect of uh, protecting the community. Mm. Um, let's say we have a um, I report a vulnerability that is in a specific software, and I report it to a vendor, and now the vendor uh, needs to make sure that their customers are applying the fix, that they're applying the update. Um, so sharing, sharing it with the community, sharing the impact, the clear impact of the vulnerability, even specify numbers, like thousands of organizations are affected by this vulnerability. It will help attract attention and it will help ensure that customers apply the fix. Um, so for ev every vulnerability that requires an action by the, by the customer, by the user, uh, it's very important to share it, to talk about it and to share about it. Um, not just for the sake of transparency, but also to actually help them protect uh, their environments. Um, some vulnerabilities does not require a fix by the, um, uh, by the customers. For example, a vulnerability in the backend of a provider. And that is a different aspect. It's more about transparency, that people will know that those vulnerabilities are possible. Uh, people will take it in conclusion. Um, and um, I think basically being transparent about security issues, um, about how, how companies uh, took the security issue in consideration, how did they handle it, um, it, it reflects a very good um, uh, insights uh, for their customers and for the community. You've had some very high profile vulnerabilities that have been 
uh, had had quite a or potential to have a significant impact in the world, um, such as Chaos DB and uh, Oh My God exploits. Can, can you tell us a bit about both of those and sort of how you came to discover them and, and how that disclosure played out? Yeah, definitely. So I, I will start with the uh, Oh My God vulnerability. Um, it's a vulnerability that was found by uh, Nir Orfeld, one of the security researchers uh, in my team. In my team. Um, he discovered that um, Azure, the Microsoft Cloud, uh, tend to install uh, a piece of software, we call it middleware, on customers' virtual machines in order to um, provide customers with uh, advanced support and advanced functionalities to, man to manage their uh, virtual machines, to manage their servers. Um, now, the, this piece of software, the OMI agent, um, was not written that good. It was actually, it was written in C. Um, it was very easy to find the vulnerabilities. We find four vulnerabilities. Uh, three of them was um, a local privilege escalation vulnerabilities, which could allow a low privileged user to escalate their privileges to root access on the instance. And one specific uh, vulnerability was a remote code execution vulnerability that was very simple to exploit. Um, it was basically removing one header from an HTTP request and you get a uh, root access to the remote uh, machine. Now, uh, after this, we disclosed these vulnerabilities to Microsoft, um, it took them time to fix and to, uh, to, provide a, to, to, to provide a fix to the vulnerability. Um, and then I, I think like the big story was that uh, Microsoft announced the patch in a, and the fix in a patch Tuesday. It was back in September 2021, and um, and customers didn't know. Um, they didn't know they need to fix it. They didn't know they need to to patch uh, this agent because they had no clue that this agent was installed on their server. Uh, it was mostly installed silently by by Azure. And I think that was the big thing there that um, uh, cloud providers were, and, and actually we discovered later that this is not unique to Azure. Uh, cloud providers tend to install agents on customers' virtual machines. Uh, and this is a very complicated scenario for, um, for cloud users because by the shared responsibility model of cloud providers, the, the customer is responsible, the user is responsible for everything running in their virtual machine. But if the cloud provider installed a piece of software in my virtual machine, who is responsible for updating it? Who is responsible for managing vulnerabilities for it? Is it me? Is it the cloud provider? And that was a, a big thing because Microsoft released a patch on that page Tuesday, but still all customers or most customers were still left affected. So there was a, little, a bit of a community discussion about it. And eventually Microsoft did an amazing work and they managed to update almost all OMI agents across all customers. It was a few days after the release, but uh, it was uh, it was good job in Microsoft. So that basically was the <laughs> the OMI issue. Uh, for the Chaos DB, is it was a total different vulnerability. Um, it was um, it was a vulnerability in also in Microsoft's uh, cloud uh, in Azure in a, a managed service that called a uh, Cosmos DB. Um, it, it the Cosmos DB is a very it's a um, a managed database solution that is used by a lot of uh, uh, companies in the industry. And uh, also this vulnerability was also found by Nir and Sagi from my team. 
they uh, managed to uh, execute code on a Jupyter Notebook instance that was dedicated to our user. Um, in Cosmos, the Jupyter Notebook is a, is a, is a cool tool to uh, provide visibility into database data to perform uh, sophisticated queries. But one of the features of Jupyter Notebook is to execute code. It's, it's a feature. It's not even a vulnerability. And what they discover is that they can leverage this code execution functionality and, and break out of the isolation of the managed service and to access other databases. And that was, that, that was like, I think, the, the first pattern of the cost vulnerabilities, uh, vulnerabilities that we see today, uh, not just published by Wiz, also published by other uh, talent researchers, where managed services in the cloud, um, are each, each one of them are, is isolated in a different way with a different architecture. And because there is, not, there, there is no framework on how to isolate those, um, researchers tend to find, uh, like, uh, it's, usually it's very sophisticated vulnerabilities, but they tend to find a way to break out of the isolation and to access the data of other customers. Gosh, that, um, that sounds pretty, uh, pre pretty scary in terms of the, the impact that must have or potential impact that that could have. How, um, how did you feel about that? Yeah, when we discovered, when we reported those vulnerabilities to the cloud providers, um, they took it very seriously. And um, they, they actually analyzed the key points of what we discovered. Uh, for example, uh, the hygiene of those environments or uh, the lack of network isolation in those environments. They took those patterns and they checked that across all their managed services uh, to ensure that these attacks could never happen again. So it's still working. I believe it's still pro work in progress. Microsoft released um, something about it a few months ago in their blog about their new approach of, uh, of uh, cloud security. Um, and, um, and, and cloud providers also, they are like the, when it comes to isolation, to tenant isolation, um, they are the, um, the industry leaders. Um, the cloud was built upon the promise that one resource could not be, like that customers share the same resources and one customer cannot access the data of other customer. So they have a lot of experience in that. And, um, and I believe that we, this is, this particular case, it's a very good evidence. Uh, how independent researchers uh, can actually assist and make the cloud the cloud a safer place uh, by enlightening those issues and finding those issues before attackers find them. You're sat there. You've discovered this enormous exploit. Really, what what was what was going through your mind when you first discovered that? What like, how did you feel? What were you thinking to yourself? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> for for most vulnerabilities that that one discover. Um, you feel, you have this insight, you feel like you find something, but you are still not sure. And this is the moment when your dreams are just like starting to, to I don't know, like you, you start to get excited because like, wow, maybe I found something, maybe I found something. And then there is a list of things that I need to check. Like, okay, let's see, does it work in that way? Does it work that way? And it takes time to understand that you actually find something. But at that moment, it's like the most exciting, exciting time and usually as a researcher, you have those periodically, you have, you have those doing your job. And a lot of times you are disappointed to discover that it's not a vulnerability. You, 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 you believe you find something, but it's not there. Or is that the developer was checking, was doing a verification or, or they add a condition that checks that, uh, and you, you just missed it and the vulnerability does not exist. So being a, a vulnerability researcher, it's, more, it's like being on a roller coaster. 
you are like sometimes, I mean, during, during your research, you have those ups and downs until you find something. And that, at that moment, you're, it's like, this is, this is why we're doing that for this, for that moment, when you feel it so excited about what you found, um, and, um, and once you understand like how impactful it is, um, how serious it is, uh, this is the, this is the thing that makes me excited in my, uh, day-to-day -day research. <laughs> You mentioned there, you're going through that experience of like, maybe a developer's added this subroutine, this kind of, we're going to walk through and test this, and it's not actually a real vulnerability. Do, do you believe most of the vulnerabilities in modern software are the result of carelessness? Or is it just that that happens during software development? We've got such a, a broad dispersed team working on this project that inevitably there will be an error. It's very difficult. I mean, in order to answer your question, I, I will need to categorize like vulnerability types and each vulnerability type has different um, cause. So, and it would be very difficult, but I, I will say mainly, um, I don't think sometimes uh, there is vulnerabilities in software because uh, lack of attention, because lack of, I mean, because not caring enough. Um, I, I, I mean, in order to develop a secure software, it's need to be code reviewed. You need to have good tests and um, you need to do um, a casual pen penetration testings. Um, and if you don't do that, yeah, I mean, there is no code that is clean of vulnerabilities. So the, the way to find those vulnerabilities is to, to search for them and to assure the software is, um, is well designed. Uh, yet it will be very difficult to find all vulnerabilities. And so a better approach would be to sandbox your application or try to separate it to, to try to make vulnerabilities less impactful. Um, I think most vulnerabilities, um, are, I mean, I, I also very good developers, uh, introduce, um, very embarrassing vulnerabilities. Uh, it, 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 it would be very difficult to, um, and, and I'm talking about software development vulnerabilities. It would be very difficult to, um, to find a way, like the perfect, the, I don't know, a perfect methodology uh, to write a no vulnerable code. Um, vulnerabilities that are not source, that are not software vulnerabilities, this is another aspect. Um, yeah, who's, who's responsible in that situation where a cloud provider has provided software for the service versus a tenant who's using that cloud application? How, how do you approach that conversation with your customers to say, did you know this is your responsibility or understanding that responsibility model? Yeah. So, I mean, with customers is, it's pretty clean, actually. Um, they, they, they want to be secure and usually they don't care if it's the vendor responsibility or it's in their responsibility. If there is a security issue, it's their, it's their problem and they will do everything to fix it. And if it's big customers, they will put a lot of uh, pressure about the cloud provider. And they will make sure that it's fixed and that, um, the, the, the process will be, uh, will, will work better. It will be easier to configure. Um, so, and, and the shared responsibility model, it's a very complicated thing. It's, I, I mean, since the cloud, uh, I, I believe shared responsibility, it's not limited to the cloud, but since the, since the, we talk, we start talking about cloud security, a lot of time ago, we start talking about the shared responsibility model, uh, what the security uh, responsibilities of the cloud provider against the customers. And it, it, it's an ongoing, I mean, there, there is some things that are very clear. For example, me as a customer, I don't have access to the hardware. So it's, I mean, the cloud provider must take care of the hardware security and also the physical security, right? 
but when it becomes and and and, and me as a as a customer as a user i will take responsibility to to manage my identities in uh, the best way um, and to and to and to, and to not expose uh, sensitive data externally uh, like publicly exposing data and it's the, the complicated parts are always in the middle um, and it's very difficult i mean usually um, it's a bit, it's a, yeah, it's a bit conversation both for customers and for the cloud providers. Like once there is something in the middle, it's uh, both sides are, uh, are upset. <laughs> well, well, yeah, bring, brings me nicely into a question there about companies that do get upset. Obviously, if you, if, if you as an organization has developed this amazing platform for others to use, do, do those organizations ever get upset or angry that you have found a vulnerability and you've shared that information? So uh, we had we had very very few cases that the way we publish things were criticized, um, sometimes by the community, sometimes by some of our customers. Um, we take it very seriously. We take the feedback. We love that we have feedback about how to publish, the right way to publish. When we publish, when we publish things, we try to make it uh, as much as useful for the community. We truly believe that we are doing the right thing. Um, and whenever we get a feedback, we assess it. We we try to understand if we did something that that could endanger maybe a company or that could maybe leave users at risk. This is something that we don't want to do. Um, it's very important for us that when we do a public disclosure, uh, when we after coordinating it with the vendor, it's very important for us to ensure that no customers will be affected and will be impacted by the disclosure. Um, no, um, no users, no, 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 no one from the community. We do our best for that. I was just thinking as well. You've, you've achieved so much. It's such a such a young age. What what's next for you on your to do list? Where are you going now? What what's the, what's still driving you and what excites you about the future? Um, oh, it's a very good question. I, I can share that uh, it's very difficult for me to to look into the future. Uh, even even like two years from now, I have no idea where I'll be. Um, right now, I'm having a lot of fun in Wiz. Uh, it feels like a family, so I will be there as long as it stays and as long as it feels like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that since a, a very early age, I I understood, I came to conclusions that I want to to do impact and um, and to do good uh, in the world. So, um, and it must be impactful. So I, I will definitely, um, continue to chase this road and, uh, to try to good, good things, uh, with as much impact as possible. Amazing. A very noble mission. I look forward to, uh, I look forward to kind of following you and, and seeing how that happens. What, um, on, on that kind of follow front, are, are you, are you a fan of any kind of conferences, any talks or, or any great resources you can signpost our listeners to. Is there, is there a good places that you learn from? Wow, that's a good one. Let's see. So first of all, I'm going to all the conferences, not, not all the big ones. So um, I will be speaking in uh, RSA this year. Um, I, I will also submit some uh, talks to Blackett uh, this summer. Um, there is a very, very good conference that's called Forward CloudSec. It's a, a very small conference. Uh, it happens once a year. Um, it's for cloud security professionals, um, and you can check it out. It's uh, FWD, uh, CloudSec, um, 
and um, I, I I will submit my sessions there as well. I hope I will get accepted. Um, so this is this is this is like a, a, a niche conference, but it's it, it's it's exploding. Like last year, there was I think one hundred people. This year, it's going to be three hundred people, and it's growing uh, rapidly. Um, and uh, regarding like getting knowledge, so um, I'm still using Twitter. Um, so there is a lot of good people on Twitter that share the cloud security and like uh, knowledge and cloud security issues and uh, cloud security like problems to talk about. Um, and there is a, a also a very nice Slack channel that's called uh, the Cloud Security Forum. Um, I think Scott Piper is the one that runs it. It's a very good uh, community. Uh, there is thousands of people there uh, talking about uh, everything related to cloud. Uh, it's a good a good spot also to meet people to to like to to understand like to make relationships with people in the industry, but also to to read about uh, the recent pitfalls of uh, cloud security engineers. I was going to I was going to ask you as well what what would be some advice you would give to kind of twelve year old you you know somebody listening to our podcast who's at the start of their interest and curiosity around cybersecurity. What, what would you say to them? Um, okay, first of all, uh, cybersecurity, it's, it's very simple. You always need to, I mean, once you understand how it's work, a lot of people think that hacking is like a magic. Uh, but no, it's very simple. There is very, very simple vulnerabilities that is very, very simple vulnerabilities to exploit. So I would advise to start with the very easy things. Um, I started with developing website. Um, after you develop a website, it's very easy to spot the um, uh, the areas where maybe it could be um, manipulated, where maybe where the software could be uh, misbehave. So uh, I will recommend learning um, um, like basic uh, client side and uh, and backend uh, development. Um, I don't know. I started with exploiting SQL injections. I, I, I'm not sure if SQL injection is still a thing, but um, I can assure you that, I mean, 15 years ago, it was like the most common security issue. Um, and um, it's very, something that is very important actually is to, to gain confidence, to, to start with easy things, with easy security issues that are easy to exploit and to start gaining confidence um, that you were able to exploit it, report it, um, um, bug bounty is a great way to start. Um, you have like the we have a huge playground of a lot of good companies that uh, they ask uh, users to report security issues and they even pay them. Um, so it's it could be a good place to to start. Um, I will mention that software development is I think it's critically uh, important for good hackers. So if you want to be a good hacker. Uh, learn how to develop software. Sadly, brings me into my last question, which is um, which is a question that's left from another guest on our podcast. And the question is, what's something that has now happened in our industry that you would never have predicted 10 years ago? And what change do you think will happen in the next 10 years that's going to surprise people? Yeah, I will answer the boring answer. And I would say AI. Um, Ten years ago, I didn't know what AI is. Uh, nowadays, I use G ChatGPT like on a daily basis. Uh, English is not my uh, native language, 
Um, it helps me write things. It helps me do presentations, do Twitter tweets, writing emails. Um, and I think the potential of uh, ChatGPT is huge, not just GPT, like AI in general. Um, so yeah, it's a boring answer because it's, uh, I mean, probably there is a lot, I, I, I know nothing about AI. So probably there is many good people that will mention specific things or specific industry. For me, it's, it's magic. Um, if you would ask me this question two years ago, um, I would say that, uh, I mean, back, back, uh, like a lot of years ago, I was, uh, very, uh, fascinated by, um, decentralized uh, networks. Um, I actually studied all the BitTorrent uh, stack, how peers find each other, uh, and I really liked the resilience of, the, of, an, of a decentralized network. So it was very intuitive for me to believe that like blockchain could be like a great, uh, something that could, I don't know, change the world or, and I think, I think it did. Um, and I think also blockchain also has a lot of potential, uh, but not as the, the newly AI, uh, uh, scene where we see very, very, very cool things. Absolutely incredible that the leaps and bounds open AI has made in such a short space of time and, and shout out to, uh, Mira Murati, the chief technology officer of open AI for exposing the entire world to, to those amazing leaps forward. So no, fantastic answer. And, and thank you for sharing that perspective as well. I really appreciate it. Um, well, that, that was that was everything I had. So, I mean, the last thing for me to do is to, is to really thank you for giving us your time and taking a, a step away from hunting vulnerabilities and responsibly disclosing them and, and sharing some of your story with our listeners. I um, really appreciate it, Shia, and thank you so much for coming on and, and being part of this. Thanks for listening to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it.